All right, I can see the line forming at the counter to sign up to work at VBS. <laughs> Get in line quick. It's going to be a big one. I can tell. You're going to respond to that. We need it. The book of James. Some of you have already expressed your excitement to us about um, this study of this book. And for some of you, it just resonates with you. It's, uh, James is right to the point. James pulls no punches. It's, it's practical faith. Uh, it's 54 imperatives in 108 verses. And uh, it's, here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Really practical. Refreshing. I know sometimes we just wish that, that maybe James was 50 chapters instead of 5. So we just know everything we're supposed to do, exactly how to respond. It's so relevant. And today's message I'm sure you will find to be very relevant too. It's such an important topic. Uh, Pastor Thomas did an exceptional job last week of getting us started to pursue the path of radical wholeness. A new perspective on trials. Count it all joy. A new posture of the soul. Ask God for the wisdom that is needed. He's generous. He's not miserly. Isn't that wonderful? That our God is not stingy with all that he has. And he's not in short supply. He's generous to all. He's approachable. But do not doubt when you ask. Trials will come and they'll take various forms. But be joyful. Why? Because that testing produces perseverance. The object of the testing is your faith. Your faith is being tested. Leaving behind a persevering spirit. It's not to break you or hurt you or defeat you. It's to stretch and strengthen you. An avid duck hunter was in the market for a new bird dog. His search ended when he found a dog that could actually walk on water to retrieve a duck. Shocked by his find, he was sure that none of his friends would ever believe him. He decided to break the news to his friend, the eternal pessimist, who refused to be impressed by anything. Surely this would impress him. He invited him to hunt with him and his new dog. As they waited on the shore, ducks flew by, they fired, and a duck fell. The dog responded. He jumped into the water, but the dog, however, did not sink. Instead, he walked across the water to retrieve the bird, never getting more than his paws wet. This continued all day long. Each time a duck fell, the dog walked across the water retrieved it. The pessimist watched carefully, saw everything, but did not say a single word. On the drive home, the hunter asked his friend, did you notice anything unusual about my new dog? I sure did, responded the pessimist. He can't swim. <laughs> How often do we struggle to remain positive when trials arise? We, our, our, our attitude, our perspective is wrong. And, and James, te James is teaching us to look at the trial through a different lens. Attitude matters. We will see today that we must fix our eyes on the prize. We must have a, a long-term perspective when going through a temporary trial. We must also acknowledge the pathway that leads to death and then recognize the source 
of life. Would you look with me at James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. No doubt you can see a connection here between the verses that we studied last week and, and what's happening now. It is always when you preach a challenge to figure out where to divide Scripture, where to, where to put the, the lines or the boundaries for each Sunday. I mean, you can uh, make it um, uh, smaller verses and you expand on them a little bit deeper or you put it in a larger context so you understand the overview. And there's, there's a challenge here. But I, I want to suggest to you that verse 12 here serves as a hinge between the subject of trials and temptations. And they so often are linked Look with me again at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Can I just say that we must never go too quickly past the words, blessed is the man or blessed is the one. James, in his ultra-practical way, his, his get-to-the-point way, is saying this is how to be blessed. How many great stories have been written or, or movies produced where it's all about this map that is found that is leading to great treasure? We're intrigued by them. It's, it's what dreams are made of. Perhaps this reminds us of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. There's a concept here of a roadmap to blessings. A great prize awaits those who heed these words. So James is, is first in this section, I think he's saying, we've got to fix our eyes on that crown. We've got to look at the prize. We've got to look past what is going on now and say what comes for those who prevail. Blessed is the one who heeds the counsel and stands strong under trial. Now listen, I think it's noteworthy that he does not say, blessed is the one who never endures trial. I, I want to say that's significant because you and I certainly think that, don't we? How often have you even said, I've been so blessed, things have gone so well. And, and James is saying something different here. Blessed is the one 
who stands through trial. Remember back in verses 2 through 4, James presents that trials are a pathway to being perfect or complete or to wholeness, a whole disciple. So here in verse 12, he's saying when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. As I studied this text, I fought with considering the idea of this as being transactional. In other words, you endure a trial, you get a crown. You've done your part, here's your reward. But I can't just see it in that way in light of at least two considerations. 1 Corinthians 10:13 says, "No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man." God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but your temptation, with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may not be able, or that you may be able to endure it. Now, I realize this is speaking of temptation, and we're going to see the link here, how often they can be so directly linked to trials. But there's this idea that if, if we don't succeed in a trial, we've really succumbed to temptation. And yet, the temptation is not unreasonable. It's endurable, and he provides you a way out. Secondly, in last week's text, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So God gives or offers the wisdom that you need to pass the test, to stand strong, and he's generous about it. So clearly, this giving of the crown to the one who endures points to the generosity of the giver above the achievement of the one who endures. I do not see it as transactional. Our, our tour of James might cause us to lean towards the merits of our behavior and, and that being what helps us succeed. And we've got to be careful that. We're going to have to be cautious as we go through James. Let's go and talk about this prize a little bit more. The prize is one that can be enjoyed in this life in the form of personal growth, peace of mind, and maturity, wholeness. We can recognize that through seeking God's wisdom and applying it that we have grown in our faith. And we experience the joy of the Lord and a taste of his goodness when we succeed in a trial, right? Isn't it great, great when we can, we can be victorious, when a trial comes, when, when something that might normally knock us down, when we're able to apply God's word and we stand strong? We, it's victorious, right? When we see that, that by the grace and the wisdom of God, we stood the test. Then comes a wonderful peace of God over having been through it. And then that peace can help us when the next trial comes. But James points us then to the victor's crown, sometimes translated wreath. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 says, Every athlete exercises control or self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. Revelation 2.10, the letter to the church in Smyrna. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As hard as enduring trials might be, James wants us to know that it'll be worth it. Think long term. 
And we must depend upon God for this. A lack of dependence on God is dangerous. So first, we must realize James is saying, fix your eyes on the prize, on the crown. Look past what's going on right now. Second, recognize the pathway to death. Look with me at verse 13 again. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. I think it's interesting to note what's happening here. There is an accurate understanding of the sovereignty of God in that, in that accusation that God is tempting me. But there's an inaccurate understanding of his nature and his ways. Did you catch that? There's an understanding of God's ability to control all things. So God is causing me to be tempted, right? It's speaking of his sovereignty. But a lack of understanding of how he does and does not act. And that's what James wants to correct. We must also notice there's a clear connection between trials, tests, and temptations. They share the same root word in the original language. But we must find the difference between trials, tests, and temptation, and certainly context helps us do that. For example, how do we, how do we navigate that, what James is telling us about God in that he, he does not cause us to be tempted? He does not tempt us. How, how, do we, how do we factor that in light of Abraham being told to go to the mountain and to sacrifice his son? Abraham has a great trial before him there, right? A test of his faith. But would you agree that certainly Abraham was within that tempted to disobey God? You're told, go to the mountain and sacrifice your child on the mountain. Any temptation to disobey? Hmm. Israel faces trial after trial, test after test, and they're instructed how to live, and yet they're surrounded by this immoral culture filled with idolatry and sin. And the tests and trials are from the Lord. Understand, trials that we face or difficulties that test us that are even from the Lord can lead us to temptation. You see, trials can often trigger temptation. Financial hardship might tempt you to steal, to cheat on your taxes. A rough point in your marriage might make you consider an adulterous relationship. It might make it look good to you in your mind. Fill in the blank. There's a difference. Trials and tests of various sorts present risks of us falling under the weight of them. Temptations create the risk of falling under the draw and attraction to sin that exists within us. He says, when tempted, in other words, you will face temptation. Temptation does not discriminate. There's no easy highway or bypass around temptation. That's a reality. Reality number one. 
We all face temptation. This is a simple fact. I don't need to expand upon it for you. We know this. Different temptations for each one of us in different ways, but we all face it. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was put to death by the Nazis, said this about temptation. In our members there is a slumbering inclination toward desire that is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering desire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in the flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame or power or greed for money or finally the strange desire for the beauty of the world, of nature. Joy in God is extinguished as we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Satan does not fill us with hatred for God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in the deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves. Is what the flesh really want, or what, what the flesh wants really sin in this particular case? Is it not permitted to me, yes, expected of me now, here in my particular situation, to appease desire? It is here that everything within me rises up against the Word of God. Isn't that powerful? Reality number one, we all face temptation. Reality number two, God is not the source. No one should say, God is tempting me. He is not tempted. He does not tempt. Temptation's origin is not God. God is holy. God is complete. He's whole. He lacks nothing. But perhaps you're now asking that question, how then could Jesus, a member of the Trinity, God in flesh, be tempted in the wilderness? The kenosis passage, Philippians 2, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In this emptying of himself, he was susceptible to temptation. The difference was his desires within him were to do the will of the Father. And they prevailed. We will experience temptation and God is not the source. Third reality it follows a clear and observable pattern. It's a clear and observable pattern. And that's why we need to recognize it as the pathway to death. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. Saying it's not God. It's actually you. When, notice the timing, the start, by his own evil desires is dragged away and enticed. 
It's dragged away as this, this picture of what, what happens when a, when a fish bites into that shiny lure and is hooked and now is pulled. Now things are beyond that fish's control. Notice the word entice. It draws in another factor in the equation as well. It, often it's an outside factor that mixes with our own evil desires. Let's, let's talk about King David for a moment. He stayed back from battle and he was perhaps bored. Maybe his first mistake. He's enticed. The entrance of the outside factor starts to play in. He goes and he sees Bathsheba and, and instead of just going, whoa, and looking away, he stays for that extended look. He's drawn in. I love the way Charles Swindoll put it. He said, when we allow temptation to linger, we eventually sin. When we allow temptation to linger, we eventually sin. Second Corinthians 10 says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. But desire builds and rational thinking gets pushed aside. Verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The lure looks ever so good and strong desire overrules reason and gives birth to sin and death. Notice that James is using here what is normally beautiful imagery of conception and birth to communicate something grotesque. If you think about the times that we give in to temptation, quite often it is not a single standalone occasion. Sin often travels in packs. Certainly true with David. Think of David, the lust. The deception, he starts to deceive himself. He, he pushes away God. He, he denies his principles. He lies to himself. He, he believes that which is not true. And he allows selfishness to take over. And what does he do? He takes the bait. And then when the problems start, he's got to cover his tracks. And even in dealing with the repercussions of, of the sin is a pathway to death. Death of the relationship between Bathsheba and Uriah and death of Uriah. Death of David and Bathsheba's child, and disaster and death in David's family line. Why does this happen? I often think that once we begin to rationalize away sin, we get on a roll. We excuse this thought, and then we excuse that thought, and we just kind of let it build momentum, excusing away every thought and action that is sinful. James says it leads to death. So what, what is this death? Is this a physical death? Is this an eternal death? Clearly sin leads to eternal death. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death. Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it, its way is to death. But what about for the Christian who falls into sin? Because remember, that, that's James's audience. Swindoll pointed back to the Jewish background that J James had and said this, 
Death was seen as more of a trajectory than a destination. To be dead was often a description of the poor quality of life rather than the cessation of being. Let's think about it in the Old Testament perspective. It's interesting that Moses had never taught the, that the Israelites were justified by obeying the God, by, by, by obeying God, but he says Abraham was justified by faith. But look at Deuteronomy 30 with me for a moment. Verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. Tremendously contrasting end results based upon choices made. And I think James is speaking here also of fellowship, not justification. True life would require obedience. Let me make this a little bit more simple and in a practical sense. Have you ever experienced a poor quality of life because of sin? Your own sin or the sins of somebody else? It affected the quality of life. A lie that caused you to have to lie more. And then when discovered that trust is broken and so hard to rebuild. A breaking of the law that leads to fine or other penalty. Infidelity that leads to divorce or family strain. Have you ever watched someone else suffer because of their choices? The cause and effect of, of what happens. These, these are trials that are sort of brought on by themselves. As pastors, sometimes we have to listen to people who, who come in and, and when they describe their situation, it's such a tangled web because of sin after sin and it's so complicated, it's hard to know where to start to get out of it. Two men that I'm currently counseling have made repeated bad decisions and it's got them in such a bad spot. Let me pause right here and I want you to hear me. If you hear nothing else today, be certain of this. It is much easier to stay clear of temptation than to try to undo the consequences that sin can have on our lives. Please just take it in for a second. It's much easier to, to deal with temptation as it comes and deal with it properly than to deal with the mess and the disaster that sin leaves behind. Sin is a slow and steady drip of poison that gradually brings death. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Traps are set all around us. But what James is saying is when by your own evil desires you're dragged away, the enemy is within. It's hard for us to see ourselves that way perhaps. Colin Smith calls it the treason inside of us, in our flesh. I love that. Those evil desires that get sparked by something in us, that's treason against ourselves. 
What an important distinction. How helpful for us to be aware that the sinful desires that reside within us are treasonous. The threat is real, people. And I know I don't have to tell you this because I know you've all dealt with it, right? Oh, just me. Yeah, you guys like to leave me hanging out to dry. <laughs> but an important distinction here is that it's written to believers. This isn't about salvation. Remember the death question. It goes back to some important theological truths. First, justification happens outside of us. It's that courtroom declaration by the Heavenly Father based upon our faith in Christ and what he's done. It's a once and for all declaration. Second, sanctification is essentially the work of the Holy Spirit. We work in cooperation with it. It's inside of us. It's internal. It's ongoing. It's a continuing process until we come home. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Justification removes the guilt of sin. Sanctification removes the pollution of sin. Got to keep going. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. This is more than a transitional thought here in my estimation. James is connecting the two things here. He had just written about the deadly progression uh, from temptation to sin to death, and now he wants them to know the truth about the source of life and goodness. Look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Let's first examine what's being said here. Good, perfect gift. People, these are words of life, aren't they? They're words of life. Not just good, but perfect gifts. In contrast with evil desires, temptation, sin, and death. Words of life are words of death. And, and, the, and the good and perfect gifts are coming from the sources, the Father of heavenly lights. It's only, he's only described like that here in the New Testament. It's the only place. As many references to God as light. I mean, John 8, uh, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And James is pushing more truth forward here. But why this? And, and why is he saying this here? Again, context. Back in verse 13, when it said, tempted, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He, James is correcting a false idea here. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from God coming down from the unchanging Father in heaven. I, a little side note here. I think it's fascinating that James does not make any effort to prove that God is good here. He's very matter-of-fact about it. There's no Old Testament reminders of, of the blessings or, or reminders of the Father sending his Son. He simply pre presents what is true about God. He's saying, listen, do not be fooled. Do not be tricked. Do not be deceived. Do not give in to temptation. Because God, or God doesn't give us temptation, God gives us that which is good and perfect. He's the father of lights. He's not lurking in the shadows trying to trick us. Even the light which he created, which comes and goes each day, he does not change like that. 
Think about it. All that you and I know is change. But God does not change. Even better to know that he wants what is best for us because he loves us so much. Verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The Levitical law taught us that the Israelites were to give the first tenth of their crops and herds back to God, the first and the best. A significant statement here said about us. He's the one who gives that which is good. Now, James is practical. Let's get really practical here, okay? We can all perhaps think of the failure of certain people. Maybe, maybe it's of, your, of yourself or, or maybe major failures of, of famous church leaders or whatever. Similar to David's fall. I want to tell you that th those individuals did not wake up one day and say, I'm going to sin today. I'm going to make really foolish decisions today. That's my goal for the day. I'm going to give in to temptation today. But rather, a progression of little concessions. Little concessions to desire. Letting that thought float just a little bit longer. Imagining a little bit deeper about that thought. Entertaining thoughts that should have been taken captive and considered as treason. Toying with temptation and desire as though it could never trap you. Yet David was a man after God's own heart. But it hooked him. When temptation sparks a desire that leads to sin, that leads to death, we're caught like a fish with a big hook in its lip. Do you realize that in that moment, you do anything to turn back the clock? Anything to have a redo on that moment. When you're caught and you know it and you're hooked in and you're being dragged away and you realize you've lost all control and the decisions that you have made have now made a mess of things, you'd do anything to turn back the clock. That's why it's far more important to think about what we must do to not be hooked by the temptation than by trying to fix the problem afterwards. James is saying, fix your eyes on that prize, that crown. Have an eternal perspective. Acknowledge the pathway to death and recognize the source of life. Let me get personal for a minute. How do you respond to temptation? What's your pattern? Do you blame others, even God, for it? Do you allow that temptation to lure you towards sin? Or do you call those thoughts what they are? Call them treason and just say, no way. And ask the Holy Spirit for help in times of temptation. Pull on those verses. Open the word. Find what you need to find to have the strength. Ask for the wisdom to prevail. 
do you remind yourself of the danger of caving in to sin? Maybe we need a new response to temptation. And the path to death, again, is temptation. It leads to desire. It leads to sin. It leads to death. But the path to life is something different. It's temptation. And then it's remembering God's promise. Remembering his identity, his nature. Remembering what he has done and what he gives. What he offers, that crown of life. That he is the one who gives every good and perfect gift. And I would suggest to you that that lends itself toward that inward trait of a disciple of loving Jesus. Being so grateful. Repenting with a humble heart. The good news is we have a God who forgives. That grace and mercy is within reach because of Christ. Amen? God is a father of light who only gives good and perfect gifts. We have a promised inheritance in eternity with the Lord. God himself has brought us forth and given us new life. We have new life. We don't have to remain on a trajectory toward death. This is good news. It's heavy, but it's good news. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, would you just ignite the passion of our congregation to love you by living out our faith. And Father, would you just use this book of James to stir in our hearts some very practical decisions and some, some principles to live by. Father, would our actions reflect a heart of Christ's wonderful love. Father, would you, by your spirit, bring conviction in our hearts and lives to those areas where we've been soft about our desires and our temptations, where we've been foolish. And Father, may we recognize that it is far easier to apply your word and get out of the temptation than to succumb to it and try to fix things later. God, you have the words of life, and we give you thanks and praise for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.